today, we're going to start in, in, or finish Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, and we're going to see that this marks uh, the very center of, of Mark's gospel. This is the, the turning point. I, I wouldn't say climax, but this is the, the very core, the middle of Mark's story about how God became king. So, so this morning is very significant as far as our study goes. So here we go. Um, most of the text we'll have on the screen there. And you're very welcome to read along. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, that is Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There we go. Who do the people say that I am? That's the opening question. This is the question that I believe Mark has been leading up to. Who is this mightier one? Who is he? Now, if you will recall, um, Mark actually introduces us. He, he tells us who Jesus is explicitly right at the very outset of the story. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is. Spoiler alert. Very first verse of the book. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. John the Baptist immediately appears on the scene. He's the one who pointed to Jesus and he said, look, the one who is mightier than I. He, he knew who Jesus was. Of course, he was, he was a prophet. Not quite human. Human, but very, very special. John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. I was telling someone recently, I, I was in Israel one time. This is a stupid story. And have you ever been to Israel? Have you ever had that experience? I'm sure if you, if you have, it's awesome. We were in the River Jordan. And I had this little like moment where I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is, this is surreal. Jesus was baptized right here. It was probably like miles down the river or something. But this, this is it. So I had this little like sort of religious moment with the Lord. And I thought, I wonder what it would have been like. And I sort of baptized myself, like mock baptized myself. <laughs> and I flung myself back and I hit my head on the rock so hard I almost passed out. Dumb, so dumb. <laughs> when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, it says that there was a voice that sounded from heaven. This is like God the Father speaking audibly out of the heavens. And he says, This is my son. In fact, he speaks to Jesus. He says, You are my son, and with you I am well pleased. God was not confused about who Jesus was. Um, immediately, Jesus begins to confront uh, demons. It's like a big part of his ministry. Heals people. Um, he, he, he's feeding people. He's teaching people. And then occasionally, or often rather, he, he begins to like encounter people who are seriously demon-possessed uh, or oppressed, however you want to word it. And every time it happens, the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And they say stuff like, you are the holy one of God, or you are the son of God, or the one who had legion, a whole army of demons said, you are son. You are the son of the most high God. So at the beginning of the chapter, there doesn't seem to be like a whole lot of confusion about who Jesus is. Mark tells us, the prophet knows the voice from heaven makes it explicit. The demons know exactly who he is. But then when it comes to just like the people, the crowd and his own disciples, us humans that Jesus starts to interact with, no one can figure him out. We're all clueless. The Pharisees, uh, these are like the, the religious elite of that day. They think he's totally like crazy demon-possessed guy. That, that's their take on him, or at least that's what they want everyone to believe. Uh, Jesus' own relatives and hometown friends thinks he's just crazy. You guys remember that bit where he's like back in Nazareth and his family comes to him and says, Look, you gotta get Jesus out of the house. He's lost his mind. Other people uh, speculate that perhaps he's John the Baptist or like a, like a, a type of John the Baptist. Even like a cursory reading of the Jewish scriptures will, will let you know that we're not talking about reincarnation here. Totally different worldview. 
But they think, well, maybe he's like John the Baptist. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's his role. Or may, maybe he's like a type of Elijah. If you know your Old Testament history, you'll remember Elijah was one of the few people who didn't actually die. He just like went to heaven. He took off in like a, a, a chariot of fire or something. And, and, and maybe it's Elijah come back because Elijah was the prophet who did miracles. Like he, 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 he demonstrated uh, the power of God, which Jesus was certainly doing a lot of. And others are just like, well, he just seems to be acting like one of the prophets of old. He's like a fiery teacher, and he's, he's here to remind Israel of like where we've gone wrong and who God really is and how we're meant to, to be acting. But everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got a different theory. Who is this Jesus? But then he asks the, the penultimate question. But who do you say that I am. And this makes for great preaching. Who do you say? Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> Who do you say this Jesus is? And of course, Peter famously gets it right. Probably one of the few times that, that Peter actually gets it right. It's ironic. Mark, of course, um, if, if you do a bit of the sort of historic research, um, most Bible uh, scholars, historians agree that Mark, Mark was probably writing this, uh, his sort of take on Jesus and the gospel in Rome, which is, of course, where Peter ended up being like the leader of the church in Rome. So it's just, I think, ironic, slightly funny how Peter is just constantly getting it wrong as Mark's like writing this all down at the church in Rome, probably. But he gets it right in this moment. He says, you're the Christ. I believe that you are the Christ. That's the, the sort of the Greek version of the word for Messiah. You're the Jewish Messiah. You are our king, the one we have been waiting for. You're that person, the leader that, that is supposed to come and restore Israel, set things right, deliver us, set us free once again. You're, you're the king that we've been waiting for. And he gets it right. He's right. And then Jesus begins teaching his disciples, not about who he is, but, but what he has come to do. Not just his identity, but now Jesus begins to unpack the vocation of Messiah. And he says, I'm, I've come here to suffer and to die. And then in three days, rise again. Peter was like, no, nope. That's a terrible idea. And so leave it to Peter. He's so bold. He takes it upon himself to, to have a little, little side meeting with Rabbi Jesus right there in front of the other disciples and I mean, you, you've got to put yourself there. He's like, Jesus, no. No, 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 no. You're the king. You didn't come here to suffer and die. And what come back in three days, what, is, what does that even mean? And he rebukes Jesus. Jesus is looking around. He's, he's, this is all happening right in front of the other 11 disciples. And so Jesus is left with no choice, but he has to rebuke Peter. And he does it in the most severe way. 
He doesn't just say, hey, buddy, you know, no, you're kind of wrong. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, you're completely confused. Beyond confused, somehow your plan aligns with the very kingdom that I've come to subvert, to overthrow. You have any idea what you're saying? You're thinking you're talking like the, the king of darkness, like Satan himself, the destroyer, the one whose sole agenda is to kill, steal, and destroy, to take life. That's, that's what you're saying. That's how you're thinking. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus, of course, has to be thinking back to the very beginning of, of his, his ministry and his journey when he already confronted Satan. You, you might recall it says that after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit out into the desert, the wilderness, and then he fasted for 40 days. That's insane. And then when he was hungry, Satan came and tempted him. And Jesus overcame. Jesus overcame. He won that battle. And now Peter, his guy, his disciple, kind of the leader of the pack, if you will, is saying, hey, maybe rethink this whole thing. Maybe Satan's plan's not like that bad. It doesn't involve dying and suffering. Think about that. And Jesus calls him right out, get behind me, Satan. I have this uh, teacher currently, uh, currently I'm, I'm working on my master's degree at Western Seminary. And I was invited to participate in a, in a really good, just like a cohort. There's about 15 of us. And we're going through all of our, our, our theology courses together and our Bible courses together. And um, in fact, one of our, my, there's two, two cohort leaders, uh, Gary Brashears and Guy Gray. Guy's going to come preach for us in August, which I'm super stoked on because this guy's like brilliant. He's one of my, my heroes. And, uh, <laughs> but when Gary teaches... He's one of these professors where he's just like insanely smart. And every time he prompts our little group to like respond, you just know for sure, no matter what you say, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> Even when you think like, oh, this is a trick question. Maybe if I just say Jesus, like I'll get close to the right answer. And no matter what, it just, there's just no winning. This reminds me of that. Peter cannot win this. He's, not, he's incapable. He's, he has much yet to learn. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. And here, here's what I think is, is super important for us. What Mark is wanting us to experience as we're sort of like there in the moment as we, as we put ourselves there. Because remember, Mark knows that we know that Jesus is in fact the Christ. It's why he's writing this. But he wants to put us there because we are Peter. Okay, we're, we're no better. We're no smarter. We're no more enlightened than like Peter himself. And Mark is wanting us to, to, to be there and experience where did Peter go wrong? How on earth could he, could he have been so right and then just like half a second later, be completely like wrong. Peter, it would seem, recognized who Jesus was, but had no idea 
where he was going. It's like he understood the facts. His, his Christological doctrine was, was seemed to be all right. He could articulate who the Messiah was. But he couldn't quite figure out where it was meant to be all going. He knew Jesus was, but didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where they were going. He didn't know where this was all leading. You have to only imagine that Peter and the rest of the disciples are probably thinking he's King Jesus. He's come to, to, to overthrow uh, Rome. I mean, we're living in a city under oppression. Uh, that Caesar is our enemy. So surely at some point we're going to pick up arms or something. Fire is going to come down. Like somehow God's going to flex his authority and we're going to take all this down. And to be fair, there are portions of the, so the messianic prophecies that would, uh, that would hint towards that. There's much that can be said about all that. But that's not what Jesus had come to do. He didn't come to start an army. He didn't come to, to exert military force or legislative might. He didn't come. And notice how he said, don't tell anyone. Peter got it. But then once again, this, this always baffles me. Why? Why? Just put it, just tweet it, put it out there. Why doesn't he want anyone to know? This, I, I think, speaks, and I'm, I'm kind of going off, I'm taking liberties here. But this speaks so loudly to our culture because we are obsessed with the whole celebrity like phenomenon, right? And even if you're not, like we all are. Like this is the air we breathe. Like let the world know. Like this is like popularity. You can use this. Jesus, you can leverage this. If everyone knows, like this whole king thing could totally work out. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking world domination here. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Why? Because no one really understood where this was all going. Jesus didn't come to, to win a popularity contest. He didn't come to somehow impress the masses or gain control. He was on a rescue mission. He came to suffer and to die, and that's how he would overcome and save the world. He recognized who Jesus was, but had no idea where he was going. And then Jesus calls the crowd to himself. This is the first time that Jesus actually calls the crowd to himself. Up until this point, it's, all, it's like Jesus is trying to like escape the crowd. Constantly trying to get away, constantly trying to just like get with his disciples. And wherever he goes, of course, word has gotten out because people have gotten healed. People have heard the stories. I mean, apparently a little girl actually was raised from the dead. Blind people have received sight. It just happened. And so word's definitely gotten out. But now for the first time, he calls the whole crowd to himself. He needs everyone to understand what's about to happen next. This is really important. He needs everyone to know. 
This is where this is really going. So he calls the crowd to himself, including his disciples, and he begins to explain to them the way of sacrificial love. If anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his or her cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will eventually end up losing it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, for the kingdom's cause, my cause, then you will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For the first time, Jesus is actually now talking cross. If you want to come after me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you must be willing to take up your cross, lose your life for my sake, and follow me. What kind of kingdom is that? What kind of kingdom is that? That's what I would have been thinking. Like seriously? Okay, you're the king. Awesome. Survey says yes. And now how is this going to play out? How are we going to subvert this oppressive regime that we've been living under now for who can remember how long? How are we going to overcome spiritual forces of wickedness? How are we going to take down Caesar and reestablish the kingdom of Israel, God's good, righteous, joy, peace, filled kingdom we're gonna what yeah, we're gonna take up our crosses can we go to the next slide please I love this picture we're going to take up our crosses we're going to lay down our lives like Jesus for his cause and follow him this is the way of the cross. This is the way of sacrificial love. Guys, I know, like, probably, if I had to guess, like the majority of us here in this room are like, yeah, I get it. Like this is, we were talking like the gospel, right? Jesus died for my sins, cross, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there is, we talked about spiritual inoculation. And so I'm so aware of the fact that like some of you are like, yeah, yeah, got it. Okay, let's, let's go. Let's get on to like the, the more interesting stuff. Guys, this is it. Like this, it does not get any more interesting or substantial or powerful as the way of the cross. And we have, we've just got to pause for a minute. I'm going to try to emphasize this point. But this is like, this is insanely radical stuff of what Jesus is actually proposing. See, because we're tempted to think like, oh yeah, it's, it's like, that's a, that's a very uh, poetic sort of, sort of metaphor for like uh, being charitable. Cool. No, it's not. He's, he's, he's speaking plainly. He's saying, if you want to be a part of, of the kingdom that I'm about to inaugurate, it's going to mean you lose your life. Take up your cross and follow me. Many of the people that he was speaking to died on Roman crosses. For real. Most of his disciples were crucified like him. And if you've ever perused church history, you'll know that for the martyrs, that was an 
awesome honor. Like there, it wasn't like, oh no, it's all gone wrong. It's, oh yes, the kingdom is advancing. The way of sacrificial love is going viral. And it did. Because eventually Rome didn't just fall. It was, it was engulfed in the way of Jesus. Now, of course, you know, I, thought, I heard that like, was a big political thing. Of course it was. Everything's political. <laughs> but it was true. The kingdom advanced. And people began to walk in the way of sacrificial love. Could you imagine... What, is, what are the implications of that? Lose your life and you'll find it. Cling to it, you'll lose your soul in the end. Take up your cross. Give up everything for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, the good news, everything we've been talking about, that God loves the world so much they didn't come to obliterate it. He came to rescue us. That's why he died on the cross. He suffered for us. You might be thinking, yeah, but isn't it, that, that, doesn't that mean that like, we don't have to suffer because he suffered? Uh, yes, but totally no. No, he, he suffered not so that we could avoid it, but so that we could partake in the fellowship of his suffering. He didn't die so that we could avoid, avoid it. He died so that we can like him and experience new life. That's what he's talking about. Lose your life. Give up your life. Serve others. Consider the interests of others before yourself. Serve. Serve when it's not deserved. Serve when you don't feel like it. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. Now, guys, I feel like a total hypocrite going on about this. Because if I, if I were to reflect, honestly reflect just for two seconds about my life, I'm like, who am I kidding? Like, I am not carrying a cross around. I am stinking. I am, I am not, not spoiled, blessed. That's, that's what Christians say. I'm not spoiled, I'm blessed. I am blessed rotten. Bless rotten. And thank God. I think that's wonderful. I think God longs to bless his kids. He says that he, he provides for all of our needs according to the rich abundance of his glory in Christ Jesus. He provides for his kids. And then he calls us to lose our lives like him that we might experience new life, abundant life, real life. And then he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Isn't that a weird thing to say? The cross, of course, is as shameful as it gets. First century, shame, honor, culture. To be crucified in the Roman cross was, was the epitome of shame. I mean, from, from what I understand, most victims of crucifixion would have been nailed on the cross naked. They would have been spit at, insulted, tortured, like in the most public way imaginable. It would have been pure shame. And Jesus says, so as you take up your cross, as you lose your life and follow me, 
so that you might experience true life, real life, actual satisfaction in this life and the life to come. As you're experiencing this, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Later on, the apostle Paul, who originally mocked Christians, hated Christians, didn't get Christians, later became a Christian. And he wrote in Romans 1.16, I will not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. I won't be ashamed. How, what is so shameful about following Jesus? What's really so shameful when it comes down to it? Is because like you're slightly embarrassed. Someone's going to ask you, "What did you do this Sunday?" You're like, uh, "You know, just just stuff. I went out Sunday morning, kind of did some stuff." You know, have you ever felt that? This is just me. You felt it. We've all felt it. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I don't think that's it. I think that's just like insecure. That's just human insecurity. We need to just kind of get over that, I guess. What's so shameful about the cross is that it's a way of life that is radically unlike the picture of success in this world. Like you're going to look like you don't have it going on. What you're giving your stuff away, you're serving others, you're putting other people, undeserving people before yourself like Jesus did for us. You're an idiot. Like what's wrong with you? You should be like, you should own a house by now. You should drive two cars. You should dress better. You should have more life. You should, you should be building your profile your resume is pathetic because what, you spend all your time serving others? What kind of career maneuver is that? And it can, I mean, if you go down that road long enough, you can begin to feel like, okay, I'm not quite fitting in to the world's idea of, you've got a great life, you've got a life I would like to have. And that, that's deeply paradoxical because at the same time, as the world looks on, everyone wants what Jesus offers. But don't be ashamed. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. Learn to live the way of the cross. And be secure. Because you are loved. Because you do belong. Because you have a family who knows you. And loves you despite everything you've got going on. Because grace is real. Because our Heavenly Father never, ever, ever stops loving his children. Nothing can separate a child of God from the love of the Father. Nothing in heaven or in hell can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is deep, profound, otherworldly security in that. There is no need for shame as we live out the way of the cross. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.